This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. And listen, for information on any of the services that we talk about on in the segments, uh, and you'd like more, go to sands-trustee.com, or you can call 1-800-661-3030 for that free consultation and to find an office near you. So, Blair, I love these mm-hmm. segments where we get to talk about the kinds of uh, all the different things that you've been dealing with the past month. Yeah, it's, you know, topical stuff, what's in the news, what are the client matters that I'm seeing, and um, this time with being the end of the year, you know, I thought we'd start to look towards 2019. And, well, I think you know, it's a good idea. A, a few predictions, and I don't want to say it's all doom and gloom, but... Well, a lot of it is. Yeah, and and I think information. If you're armed with information, you're in much better uh, shape than if if you just want to, you know, do the the monkeys close your eyes, mm-hmm. don't speak, close your ears, so you don't know what's going on yeah. because it is a bit unsettled. 2019 definitely. There's lots of things that are are not going uh, as well as they possibly could. Oh, there, uh, there's on a big scale. So much uncertainty, right? Yeah, you know, there even is. the whole U.S. and China trade dispute. Yeah. That alone, I was reading today, the Bank of Canada is saying, you know, that could permanently change the productive capacity of the world economy. That, yeah. That's a massive statement to make here. So, you know, obviously things will get negotiated and everything will be fine, but there are some really big factors that are out there. We're not going to focus too much on those. We're going to focus on what we know about, which is Canadian individuals and how they're going to deal with their debts. Good. And I think that's important. Like I say, I think people are better armed with information than not knowing anything. Mm -hmm. So the first thing comes from um, a group, uh, an organization of all the trustees across the country. Yeah, there's an organization called, it's a mouthful, but the Canadian Association of Insolvency and Restructuring Professionals, which, you know, it abbreviates to CARP, which you probably don't need to know and you'll never hear again. Which you are one of these guys. I am one of those thousand members. So every trustee in Canada pretty well is a member of CARIP. And it's an industry association, you know, like the Law Society or, you know, Mortgage Brokers Associations, different things like that. Um, So our association issued a press report recently uh, that we expect insolvency rates to increase in 2019. And the basis for that, and by insolvency rates, we mean people doing bankruptcies or consumer proposals, which is what we talk about a lot on this show. Yeah. And this is based on historically, our association went back and did a really detailed analysis of what is the relation between interest rates and people filing bankruptcies and proposals. And what they found is it's not an immediate relationship, meaning that as soon as interest rates rise, you know, people don't go running to the trustee's office, but it is about a two-year lag from when interest rates start to rise to when insolvency rates really start to spike. Okay. It's yeah, that's not great. Uh, but it is interesting to know that there is a period of time where I don't know, I like to think it's a bit hopeful too that maybe can be people have an opportunity to flip things around a little bit too. Mm-hmm. But in any event, yeah. Yeah, and this, not, and this is just history. You know, history yes. doesn't necessarily predict the future, but uh, from 96 to 2000, for folks that remember that we're, you know, perhaps getting mortgages around that time, um, there was an increase in interest rates around that time, and there was a 22% increase in the number of insolvency filings, again, about a two years later. from So from about 98 to 2003, insolvency rates went up quite a bit. Yeah. 
Uh, it happened again in 2004-2006. Interest rates increased, and there was actually a 54% increase in the number of people doing bankruptcies and proposals. So it's pretty significant. Now, why why do you think there was almost double or more than double the amount in that period of time than in the previous period of time? Well, as as we've talked about a lot, we just continue to increase our average amounts of debt in Canada. Okay. So, you know, the five-year period earlier, people had less debt. They could handle it a little bit better. You know, even now, people are so much more vulnerable. We're going to talk about that later in this segment. The debt-to-income ratio, it's at record highs just about right. every, every quarter here. Okay. And, you know, from 2010 to 2016, we've all been living in this very nice, low-interest rate Super environment, low, right? right? You know, close to zero. Uh, but in the last year, there there's been a big increase. Um, you know, interest rates have the highest they are. They've been in a decade. Um, back to December of 2008, the bank's rate is now at 1.75%, which for anybody that was getting a mortgage in 1980, for example, that just seems ridiculous. You know, the bank rate was 20% around there. Right. But 1.75 compared to, you know, 0.25 or 0.5 as it was for periods of time, it's a real significant difference. Got it. Got it. And then you talk about um, the, and this is interesting too, so the increase for Andrew interest rates sitting at 1.75%. But since the summer of 2017, rates have gone five times. Yeah. Which is, which again, if you look at what has happened, it's a little easier to predict what may continue to happen then. Mm-hmm. A gradual ratcheting up. It's been about a quarter point almost every time. And the bank took a pass on the most recent quarter, but you know, it's likely that rates are going to continue to increase. Got it. And it's also, it's bigger than, you know, just what it does to your debt. You know, yes, it makes your debt more expensive in some cases, like a home equity line of credit, a variable rate mortgage. Those are the top two debts that are really becoming a lot more difficult as rates go up. But it also impacts the overall economy because rising rates cause consumers to spend less money. Which is a good thing. Could be. In, in a yeah. sense, for for a person uh, to to maybe uh, pull back their spending a little bit versus continue on mm-hmm. at, at a at a, a, a faster rate. Oh yeah, o- overspending is never a good thing. Right, that's uh, what I'm thinking. Yeah. But I know overall impact for the economy is not great. Yeah, the overall impact of consumers spending less is not just that overspending gets cut back, but actually you know regular spending yes, as well. I understand. So then sometimes that can lead to unemployment, business growth yeah. decline. It can be this just vicious cycle. Yeah. Um. So the summary of the report was that 70% of trustees in Canada believe that insolvency rates will increase over the next five years. Okay, but they're not an idea of how many or what the percentage increase is going to be. There's a wide range of, of, right? of you know potential opinions on that. Um, I can't see it being another 54% jump. Like that's pretty significant. It is. Um, but I think we'll see double-digit increases over the next couple of years. Okay. Now, uh, are we here on the Lower Mainland more vulnerable than, let's say, well, I won't say Alberta because mm-hmm. I know that Alberta's been hit incredibly hard, yeah. um, but are we more vulnerable yes. than anyone else? Yes, absolutely yes, six ways to Sunday. Okay, uh, regardless of our situation. Yeah, and the reason for that is the debt-to-income ratio for Vancouver residents, um, Elaine, this, this boggles the mind. It's 242% as of June 30th of 2018. That means for every dollar that someone in Vancouver is earning for income, Income, they owe two dollars and forty-two cents in debt. Wow, that's a crazy which amount. Which is a lot. Now nationally, the rate is one hundred and seventy-one percent, so a dollar seventy-one. Vancouver, we're two dollars and forty-two cents. That's a crazy difference, right? But even one seventy-one, that's mm-hmm. not good either. Oh no, it's still that a, surprises and me. And that's you know, an all, pretty close to an all-time high. It's been in the one seventies in the last you know couple of years or so, but it's never approached that in years prior. So and that's the average, the national that's average. That's the average. Yeah. So you're taking provinces that where it 
it where it's where they don't have those kinds of levels at all. Yeah. And then we're added to it, Vancouver, and then I'm you know Toronto. I know is you know real mm-hmm. estate expensive, real estate etc. And you hit the nail on the head because the main culprit driving it, especially in Toronto and Vancouver, is yeah. very high mortgage balances. Uh, again, Vancouver is at two hundred and forty-two percent. The only other Canadian province above two hundred percent is Toronto at two hundred eight. Okay. And anyone who's followed Toronto real estate knows there's been this massive run up in the last you know three five years. A lot of people overextended on mortgages. So these stats are you know scary is, is the word to me. Um, in that you know Vancouverites seem to be more vulnerable than the average person in Canada. What's the risk? Like what's the worst or not the worst case scenario? But what are the bad? What's what's the bad news about that? Yeah, the risk um, is that as you know, debts continue to rise. Um, CMHC, which is who put out this study, they're concerned that households might be unable to afford their mortgage payments along with all their other debts. And that could lead uh, to, you know, difficulty to borrow. If you're already overextended, it's unlikely you're going to be able to consolidate your debts and could even lead to, you know, some foreclosures, people having to sell houses when they're not wanting to do so and good luck finding a place you can rent in Vancouver. So there could be some folks who are going to feel really overextended and just won't be able to continue doing it forever. And my feeling is, is because we're talking about this, that it's such a, it's, it's so prevalent that we're talking about it right now as part of this segment in this show that there's probably a ton of people who are already in that place yeah. and experiencing that. I'm seeing so many young families coming into my office these even these past couple months, you know, a couple of kids, both working hard, both parents are employed, um, and they're just struggling because, you know, it, real estate has stopped increasing, so the extra equity they thought they could pull out year over year has stopped, and they find themselves with a bunch of extra debt that they're really having trouble making ends meet. So a lot of the times we can help with a consumer proposal, but sometimes the answer is, you know, you've got too much house for what you can afford to service on your income, unfortunately. Right. That's a huge impact. Ugh. That's uh, that's a huge impact. So what else? What else can you tell us? Well, I wish I had something good to say, Elaine. <laughs> I wish you did um, too. I'm finding so much great research out there that you know the the upside is I think people are talking more and more about the personal debt issues that we have, and you know a lot of the purpose of this show is just letting people know they're not alone. There's right. so many people that are facing debt problems, and I came across some great research from a company called Seymour Consulting, who I hadn't seen before, um, but they've put out this 2018 Financial Health Index study, and there are some just really really um, staggering statistics here, 45% of Canadians agree money worries make them lose sleep at night. That's an enormous percentage. Oh my God, one in two people, Yeah. right? Are not sleeping well because they're concerned about money. Um, 39% of Canadians agree that money worries affect their physical well-being. And we know that. We know that stress Mm -hmm. impacts your your physical being for sure. Yeah, and I know that the the average bankruptcy or insolvency rate across Canada is about 0.5%. It's about four per 1,000 people. So is it one one one-hundredth of the people that are feeling the pain of their debt are actually getting help? Right. That's what it seems like. It's yeah. 0.4% are actually doing something, meeting with a trustee, figuring things out. But 45, 39%, whatever it is of folks are really suffering these days. And that's what, uh, again, the reason why you do this show is to let people know they're not alone mm-hmm. and that there's some things that they can do. Exactly. And and take sort of take control back. Yeah. You know, we talk a lot about housing affordability and this research touched on that as well. 70% of Canadians agree that housing affordability is a problem where they live. Um, and I drilled that down to BC, 88% of people say that housing affordability is a problem in where, where they live, which is the highest in Canada. You know, next is Ontario at 70%. So again, a significant gap. If it feels like it's harder to get by in BC, it, it's because it is. And the, it, re- the research really bears that out. Yes. Uh, financial savings. How are people savings these 
companies saving these days? Well, so the, you know, the best practice is you've got probably six months of your you know, stable income socked away for an emergency. Um, almost 40% of people have a savings buffer of less than two months. And so, I bet there's a huge portion that won't even say that they don't have that. Yeah, there's a big portion that probably have zero. Yeah. But yeah, less than two months for all intents and purposes. You know, if you lose your job, unless you're reemployed quickly, that money's going to burn through very quickly. Right. And then you get all the economic effects of all the other things that we've talk, talked about, and, and that can infa- uh, impact employment as well. Mm-hmm. And... Um, the the percentage of people that aren't confident that they could get through a financial hardship that's uh, yeah. that's also a number to pay attention to yeah maybe just one or two more to, to call out here as I know we run out of time but this is such so interesting research to me but it's a majority of people fifty five percent are not confident they could get through periods of financial hardship so that's more likely than not people are really feeling vulnerable and if a downturn happened they wouldn't know what to do so my the thing that I want to close with in this segment is is a little bit of um, brightness. Mm-hmm. Because I would think that Sands and Associates and coming to see you or going to anybody in any of your offices might help alleviate some of that because you exactly. could take a look at everything that that family is dealing with and has and and maybe come up with a bit of a solution for them. That's what we do. Excellent. So for more information on anything that we that we talk about on the show and especially this, their website's terrific. There's a ton of information, sands trustee.com. I'm Elaine Scullin, along with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates, helping you get out of debt. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scullin, along with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So we're going to start a series, which is kind of nice. Uh, This is the first episode, segment of the series. This one is uh, Bankruptcy Myths. And uh, we're going to to cover... uh, Well, why don't you explain how we're going to do it? Yeah, we're just going to go through. We'll probably get to, I don't know, maybe three to five today or so. But um, I wanted to just try to outline, you know, when people come in the door to see me, they've got mm-hmm. a bunch of, you know, really burning questions on their mind, sometimes a bunch of preconceived notions um, about what's going to happen to them, how public it's going to be, how difficult it's going to be. Um, so I think if in today's segment we can just start to, you know, peel back the layers a little bit of the complexity and say, you know, here are the facts. What you've heard, there might be an element of truth to it, but for the most part, uh, the facts are a little bit different than what you assume. I think it's so important because we are we we sort of make up our belief systems based on a whole bunch of things including stuff that we've heard from people uh and uh and the rules then compared to what the rules are today that it uh, could be the biggest difference, right? Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. Bankruptcy law changes over time. That's a big factor. Now, it's also the case we're very close to the U.S., and bankruptcy law in the U.S. is completely different. You know, it's it's night and day different. You've got bankruptcy attorneys, you know, advertising bankruptcies for 300 bucks. It's a competitive market. It's, it's just so different um, than it is here. Um, but to know Canadian laws, that's what's going to govern you in Canada here. And I think, you know, something I've, I've come to learn over the last, especially since um, uh, in the last year or so, is how much we're in influenced Mm -hmm. by what goes on in the United States, Uh, whether it be our television, what we're reading, or or things that other countries do and how they impact us. And it's just really important to pay attention to this stuff. So key myths and misconceptions that people have about bankruptcy. And there's lots of fear and uncertainty, like you said, around bankruptcy, just the word itself. It's Mm -hmm. an old word, right? It's been around for a very, very long time. And... um, 
Yeah, it's a tough one. So good. I'm glad we're doing this segment. Okay, so let's take away some of them. Uh, everybody's going to know. Everybody is going to know that I'm in personal bankruptcy or I've taken yeah. my company into bankruptcy. Yeah, you know, public admission of failure, public shaming, okay, when is the flogging scheduled, I'll show up, you know, all these things. Um, almost everyone that comes into my office, if they don't ask this in the first meeting, by the third meeting, they, they want to make sure, okay, so who's going to know about this? Yeah. And the answer is, for the vast majority of cases, 99% of the cases, there's no notice in the newspaper. Okay, so if you see a bankruptcy notice, that's less than 1% of cases. It very rarely happens. For the vast majority of cases where someone goes into bankruptcy, unless they've got huge assets that, you know, we have to sell, uh, there's no notice that goes in the newspaper. There's no public notification of anything. What happens when somebody files for bankruptcy is obviously the trustee is aware of it. I have to notify all of their creditors that they're no longer getting paid, and the person's aware, but that's about it. You know, it's even possible for a husband or a wife to go into bankruptcy and the other person not to be aware of it. Which is really fascinating. Mm -hmm. And are it's we? Not what we recommend, but it is no, possible. No, <laughs> that's right. It may not be the best foundation for a good marriage, but it is possible. Yeah, you know, people are always very concerned. You know, does my employer have to know? For right. Example, Absolutely. That create some perception in the employer's mind of whether you're responsible or not. Even if the factors are completely outside of your control. Yeah. But the answer there is the only reason I would ever contact an employer is if you had already been sued and your wages were already being taken, and I'm the person that can stop it. Got it. So in general, it's a positive thing when someone says, okay, and you're going to get me my wages back? Yeah, I have to tell your employer. I have to send some notification, but we get you your wages back. If, you know, your employer has already seen this lawsuit that's come through and says that you're a bad person for not paying your debt. So at least this is going to show, well, now you've legally taken some steps to deal with things. Excellent. So in general, the only people that have to know about a bankruptcy are the people that find out about it. There's no one superfluous. You need to know if you've got a debt. You need to know if you're the trustee. You need to know if you're the person. But otherwise, your friends, your neighbors, your family don't need to be informed. Excellent. And, th and there's nothing that's going to happen that's going to be screaming that out to them. Uh like your house being sold, you know, like yeah. all of those things, right? Yeah, these are very good questions because it's also, there's some cultural biases that, you know, we have a, a lot of folks who maybe have immigrated from China or mm. from Korea or different Asian countries. And I know from speaking with these clients that bankruptcy in those jurisdictions is completely different. It is very public. It is literally a red tag is placed on your front door. Wow. Someone enters your property, puts a red tag on your furniture. It's, it's literally the scarlet letter. Wow. Nothing like that exists in Canada, but someone from that environment, you know, automatically assumes, well, this must be a very publicly shaming type of thing, Absolutely. and it's really not. Yeah, interesting. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll lose everything. Yeah. Everything will be gone. I won't have anything left. Yeah, and most people think that. You know, they even hesitate to come in to see a bankruptcy trustee because they think they're going to walk out, not even with the shoot, with the shirt on their back yeah. type of thing. Um, simplest way to say it is most people keep all of their assets through a bankruptcy. Okay, and the reason for that is theoretically when you apply for a bankruptcy or when you file for bankruptcy, you declare all the assets that you have and theoretically those assets have to go to pay your debts, but the provincial legislation or provincial government has stepped in and every province across Canada is similar and they've said there's certain exemptions, there are certain assets that just by virtue of us wanting to have a good dignified society that some people should never lose, they can never be taken from you and if you file for bankruptcy these exemptions kick in that usually protect just about everything that you've got. Okay. So let's talk about the categories of exemptions. Yeah. So first off, it's household goods and furniture. So I'm always asked, you know, are you going to show up at my door, inventory my furniture, cart out my TV, my computer? 
computer my bicycle the answer is no so government doesn't want that and nobody wants that really I wouldn't be doing this job that's what I had to do um, but what you have to do is just take an inventory of what you have at home and you do an inventory based on a garage sale value so I'm not asking you replacement cost for your beautiful couch or computer or whatever I'm saying if you put this out on your lawn for a garage sale or if you put an ad up on Craigslist what's someone gonna pay you for your furniture the province says you're allowed up to four thousand dollars at garage sale value I've been a practicing trustee for more than 10 years I've never once had a client who has more than four thousand dollars if we're using a garage sale or a Craigslist value yeah because we know you uh, selling selling something in a garage sale you get absolutely nothing for it compared oh, yeah. to its value well, people bargain for the entertainment I've been there with my mom bargaining a coffee mug from a dollar down to 25 cents and I'm like oh my god you can afford the 75 cents mom exactly. it's the thrill of the chase right so, oh. but th that's the lens to use it's right. nobody wants to take your furniture and as a trustee I'm gonna trust what you tell me you're gonna swear an oath this is what you have this is what you think you could sell it for and if it's less than four thousand dollars it's an exempt property you keep it um, you know another category here and this is really common sense but needs to go needs to be said is your clothing yeah. so your clothing and this includes anything you need for medical purposes if there's you know a CPAP machine or a wheelchair or things like that obviously that would be completely wrong for you to have to lose medical aids and be completely strange that we got people walking around with no clothes because they're in debt so the government says unlimited value of clothing and medical aids nobody loses any of those things if you file for a bankruptcy okay what if I have stocked my um, closet yeah. with expensive clothes. I've had that. I yeah. had someone who literally had $10,000 of clothing. Sure. They were able to keep everything. Okay. Because yeah, it's, it, it's not, hard, not hard to do today mm -hmm. if you if you're that way inclined okay good yep. so you don't lose it yeah. um, your vehicle which can be incredibly important yeah. uh, if you've got children in the home or you've got a job that you have to drive or you're self-employed we know that mm -hmm. often self-employed people uh, get in pickles uh, quite easily or can depending on circumstances what about my vehicle yeah so your vehicle again almost everybody asks this question because they assume hey if I'm paying off my car and I go into bankruptcy you guys must take that car right the answer is no. no so if you've got a loan against your car in just about every case if you want to keep making those payments you'll just keep making the payments and you'll keep the car if you own the car outright you're allowed in bankruptcy to have a vehicle worth up to five thousand dollars so if you've got a forty thousand dollar car but there's a thirty five thousand dollar loan against it your equity is five thousand and you're okay now if you've got a car that's worth more than five thousand dollars and there's no loan against it that's when typically you'd make an arrangement with the trustee we'd look at a black book value if it was sold at auction if it's worth six thousand dollars you'd pay the extra one thousand dollars above the exempt value to keep the car during the bankruptcy okay um Fair enough. Uh, tools of trade, if I am self-employed and, and I need them, regardless of whether it's yeah. uh, sewing machines or, or carpenter tools. Yeah, it could be a scalpel up to a bandsaw, it doesn't matter. Right. It's an exemption up to $10,000. Okay. So government wants you to be able to earn income, you get to keep your tools of the trade. And again, that $10,000 exemption, is that based on the same thing as my Garage furniture is based? Yep. Okay. Your Craigslist value, it's not replacement cost, it's what could you get if it was sold quickly. Wow. That's really important to remember. RRSPs, I think this is so important for people to know. I think we might have to cover RRSPs on our next topic. Okay, so don't get rid of them. Don't go cash see, them in and wait for our next segment. <laughs> go, go see Blair, Sands & Associates. Here's the number, 1-800-661-3030 for that free consultation. Check out their website, sands-trustee.com. We'll be back with more right after this.
Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Looking before you leap. And I love this phrase, and you guys, you've used it. Is it a long-time phrase or a new phrase? Uh, A couple years. It's even a hashtag. Oh, I love that. Hashtag. Get ready for it. Four times that knowing is not owing. So lots of folks sign their names to financial commitments that they don't fully understand. And I can say, um, I have signed my name to financial commitments Mm -hmm. that I've not fully understood, right? I mean, because sometimes there's pages and pages and you go, whatever, and I just trust. Well, think about the iTunes service agreement or Facebook. Has anybody read the terms of service? But it's coming back to bite. Yeah, Yeah. just up. Yeah, yeah, totally. So serious consequences, four basic examples of knowing is not owing and checking these financial, potential financial hazards before making a commitment can save you stress and money. Um, so what's the first one that we need to, that we can put under that uh, that title, knowing is not owing? Well, taking on new debt. That's definitely a situation where you want to look before you leap. You want to take the time to ask all the right questions. Um, you know, some really basic areas to review, regardless of the type of the debt, um, is first off the repayment terms and interest. So you're getting money advanced to you. You know, when do they want it back? Um, you know, when are payments due? Is going to take it directly out of your account on a certain day or they depend on you to make the payments proactively? What portion of your payment goes to the principal and which to interest? Um, so this can be interesting too because there's certain lines of credit you can get that are just interest only. Um, and if all you do is pay interest only every month, you'll never pay down this debt. Yeah, so never. you know, as long as you know that going into it, that's fine. Um, but if you think you're making progress every month and you're just paying interest only, well, then you'll get a big surprise in a couple of years when you look closely at the statements and see that you owe pretty well what you, the same as when you started. Now, I know one of the pieces, too, about the penalties for missing or making late payments, Mm -hmm. but there's sometimes penalties uh, for wanting to pay it off sooner. Yeah. And and that, I just think, is morally wrong. Oh, man. And those but can be is. can be hugely significant. If we're talking a mortgage, for yes, example, I have no. people in my office, you know, sometimes there's a $30,000, $40,000 difference oh. in, in mortgage penalties. I'm like, wow, that's a nice day for the lender to make to make that yeah. all, all at once. You know, that just, yeah. I, like I say, I just don't think that's right. If, if you're in a position that you can get rid of this debt sooner rather than later, yeah. I think, but anyways, that's just my thing. Uh, so penalties definitely for missing or late payments. And of course, yeah. penalties for making a... a wanting to pay it all off sooner. Yeah, there can be that. And again, it's all got to be clearly spelled out here. So there's going to be a legal document. It's going to be written in legalese for sure here. But if you take the time, you'll see all this stuff that's there. And it can be pages of this stuff too, which is the other annoying thing. For the layman, for like somebody like me who has no financial background at all. Yeah, it's it's not a level playing field at, at all. That's so, what I feel. Yeah. yeah, so, you know, for folks that are lucky enough to maybe have a trustee in the Rolodex, for example, exactly. or, you know, a lawyer or an accountant in the family, they've got someone that they would they would go to. Um, you know, obviously anybody listening, they could call Sands and Associates and, you know, bring in a new agreement that they're thinking about. We can look at it and you say, well- You would do that. Of course, yeah. Nice. You know, here's some potential pitfalls. Here's what we've seen with other clients. Yes. Um, you know, one thing that I see people do quite a bit, uh, and sometimes this is really buried into the fine print, but it's to sign on to all of these weird insurance and protection programs, mm. you know, balance protection insurance and disability protection insurance. And, you know, sometimes if you don't sign on to those, the bank starts to outbound call you with telemarketing saying, oh, this is a great program. You really should sign on to it. And, you know, a guide for me is the harder the bank is working to sell it, usually the less value it is to the consumer. Um, so the number of clients I've had where they just can't believe, oh, I've been paying 15 bucks a month for balance protection insurance for years. I didn't know that. 
Yeah. Well, it was clearly in the contract that you signed here, and that 15 bucks a month has just went to pure profit on the bank side and done nothing for you in terms of helping you pay down the debt. I remember when I bought a car once, a bre- it wasn't a new car, it was a, a, a previously owned car, and I felt like I was really pressured to take on this other piece of insurance, mm-hmm. and I can't even remember what it was for now. It was a number of years ago. And um, I was sitting there by myself, and I was at the car dealership. You know how they always oh, yeah. often will have an insurance person either yeah. working in their office or or comes in. But anyways, and I, you know, I felt being I was taken advantage of because of that. And and there was something that played on me that he said uh, about the insurance and why it was important. And it just seemed like, well, of course I'll take that. Like why wouldn't I? <laughs> yeah. And. I've always regretted that. It didn't cost me a whole lot of money, but it did cost me money for sure. And yeah. you know, it's ah. Well, no, Elaine, and you you thought about it after the fact. You went into to detail about it. And if someone even looks at these balance protection insurances, you know, yes. if you look at it, all it does is it just continues to pay your monthly payment in the event that you lose your job or become disabled for a period of time. We know just paying your monthly payment really doesn't get you anywhere, right? You know, you're going to be on the 60-year cycle, the 80-year cycle to pay off any reasonable size of a debt. So many of the insurances, all they're going to do is help you tread water. They're not going to actually solve a problem, which is what insurance is supposed to do, is supposed to solve a problem if you need it. Right. Good point. That's really important information. Um, Other things that should be really clear about when the payments start and when the last one is. Yeah, you'd want to know the term. Is this totally. is this open-ended? Again, can you pay it off at any time? Is it over a specific term? Um, you know, you generally want to have the ability to plan out the next you know, three to five years of your finances and know how this debt is, is going to impact. And then that last one, of course, the one that I asked about paying it off early without penalty. Mm-hmm. And that's just something that's not done anymore, right? Not often because most people don't have the ability, Fair unfortunately, enough. right? Fair enough, yeah. Yeah. Um, what about the commitment to pledge an asset to secure the debt? Yeah, this is one that you've really got to be careful about because sometimes it's really obvious. If you're getting a mortgage, of course, you've pledged your house. If you're getting a car loan, of course, you pledged your car. But there are some um, local community-based lenders um, and they'll offer financing where they'll actually take security over your personal household items. And the way my clients have related to me is, you know, you'll be sitting in the office, they'll try to get you approved with no security and they'll come back from head office. Well, a little bit risky. We're not sure about this. And usually you're borrowing money at, you know, 20 or 30%, like quite high fees anyway. Huge. A high interest cost. So yeah. then what they say is, okay, to get head office comfortable, uh, why don't you just tell me, you know, do you have a bicycle at home? Do you have a TV? Do you have a couch? And they start to write all these things down. Um, and then you sign a few more documents that maybe you didn't read closely. And what's happened is you've given that lender security over your personal household goods. Wow. Now, are they going to come and seize your bicycle and your television? Well, probably not, but they have the right to do so. And yeah. the fact that they have that right and they will threaten that and say, we'll be at your door to take these assets, you know, that's going to create a whole world of stress that you wouldn't have to be subject to if you had not pledged assets as security. Exactly. It's, yeah. And I, and I don't know, maybe this is uh, taking us off track for a second, but in a consumer proposal, I remember we've talked about before the fact that you can't lose those things. Somebody can't come in and take them. If you filed official documents and and it's a consumer proposal that you're going to pay this money back, nobody can take your stuff. That's exactly right, Elaine. That's the point of a consumer proposal is you make a settlement offer with your creditors and that's in lieu of you surrendering any of your assets. Yeah. Which could be your couch and your TV and your bed and your car and 
Yeah. Depending on its values, right? And what, what's really perverse about the whole situation here is the law in BC basically says, you know, even if you were sued in court, it's called the Court Order Enforcement Act. If you were sued in court and they needed to enforce a judgment and start to take your property, the province of BC says, hey, wait, there's a certain exemption, a certain amount that people are allowed to retain. It includes their household furnishings. It includes their clothing, their medical aids and things like that. So the government says you need this and you never have to lose it. But if you go and sign it away, well, then you've just contracted out. Right. Of that protection. Lost so, that protection so be again. very careful. I've never seen anyone who said, Hey, I'm happy I secured my household goods here. <laughs> Most people really regret it if they even knew that they did it at the time. Most people don't even know it. Right. Uh, co signing is one of those things. Yeah. It's, you know, the, the answer here, as, as we talked about in a few segments, is just to really understand that if you're co-signing, you're agreeing to be responsible for 100% of the debt. And if the person doesn't pay the money back, you're going to be held accountable for it. So when you co-sign, I really encourage people, you know, when the pen's in your hand, think about the worst case scenario. Think about if the borrower never pays another dollar on this debt, would I still sign my name? Would I still be okay? And would I have to pay if I co-signed a debt, let's say for $5,000 and the person wasn't able to pay that mm-hmm. and then the lend the bank or whoever comes to me for it, am I paying that plus all the interest owed as well or am I paying that? It depends. Um, and most of the time, it's the answer that's not to your advantage, which means you're paying everything because most of the time it's an unlimited cosign or an unlimited guarantee. So, you know, if they had to incur legal fees, for example, to try to pursue on the money, they might add that to the debt or a bunch of other fees, default fees, over limit fees and things like that. Okay. Usually if you cosign, it's not for a certain fixed amount. In the best cases it is, in the most sophisticated cases it is, but for the vast majority of cases, you're just signing to be just another borrower there and they'll throw you know, everything at you at that point. Okay. <laughs> one more reason not to, one more reason not to do it. Well, and you know, one pitfall here to, to really focus on also, Elaine, is the idea of a supplementary card. So you get a credit card, the credit card companies or the banks are always saying, you know, why don't we give one to your husband or your wife? You know, yeah. let's get a supplementary card. You know, maybe it's $50 for the year. Maybe it's nothing, you know, just a, an extra benefit for being a great client. But what happens is quite often the person who's got that supplementary card is implicitly guaranteeing the debt. So they could be held accountable um, if the primary cardholder is unable to pay the debt back and has to do a proposal, for example, the supplementary cardholder might find the bank coming to them saying, well, you're another pocket that we're going to start digging into. And then you say, well, I just got this card. I've only used it a few times. Well, by you using the card, you agree to be responsible for all charges. Right. So you got to be careful about supplementary cards. Very careful about that. Um, now, uh, marriage. That comes under that this category too, right? Four times knowing is not owing. Yeah. So, and, and this is a positive part of it. This right? is really positive because if yeah, if you're making decisions as a couple, the worst decision usually is for you to just pool all the assets, pool all the liabilities, and treat them the same. Um, because if you assume that one partner owes what the other partner owes, um, then you would do it that way. But there could be a situation where one partner is quite financially secure, has a lot of assets. Maybe the other partner has a lot of debts. The wrong answer for the couple is to take one partner's assets to pay off the other person's debts. You would do that if you thought you had no other option and everything is pooled automatically, but it's not. You know, essentially one partner could take action to deal with their debts. The other partner could preserve his or her assets without a problem. And the whole family could be much better off by just knowing that just because you're married, you're not marrying the person's debt. It still be, it still remains individual. Yeah. And then, and then it also made me think of the, the great uh, debt counseling that, uh, that Sands and Associates offers too in the situation of one person is done the com- consumer proposal and is clearing up that 
bit of a, a an issue and the other person is free and clear but boy oh boy it's a good idea that both of them go in yeah because you know it's often it's not just one person often that uh, has taken them over the or you know taken themselves to owe a lot of money uh it's maybe lifestyle stuff that mm-hmm. they can look at and, yeah for counseling especially we encourage you know both partners to come in to attend and, and they usually both get a lot out of it and the last one and we'll just mention it briefly as we wind up is debt management yeah, you've just got to be careful who you take advice from and understand that not all debt professionals are tre- are created equally. So if you're dealing with a licensed insolvency trustee, obviously at Sands & Associates, we're very proud of our approach to client service, but we know every licensed insolvency trustee is reputable and competent. If you're dealing with anybody other than a licensed insolvency trustee, you might be getting very bad advice. You might not be getting something that's going to solve all your problems and you might be paying fees with no guarantees of results. So be careful. Excellent. Go to the website. Sands & Associates has a really great website, sands-trustee.com. There's just pages of really good information, frequently asked questions with really good answers. And then if you want to take it a next step, give them a call. They've got a 1-800 number. It's 1-800-661-3030. Get that free consultation. And then to find an office near you, it's such an easy thing to do. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Ashley Gurley's in studio with us, and Ashley's an estate manager with a wide range of insolvency administration experience with Sands & Associates, and uh, spends a lot of time with clients. I love this, uh, your one piece of advice for people seeking help with their debts and this is such an important thing. I think in a lo- you could use this in a lot of situations. Your past does not define you. Meet with a licensed insolvency trustee to build a great plan for a financial fresh start. But I love that your past does not define you, and that would encompass all those 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 uh, regrets and mistakes that mm-hmm. people think they've made, and what a fool I was for doing that. Um, yeah, so that's a that's a wonderful attitude. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for having that. So we're going to find out about Ashley. And uh, I'm always curious at why, how people end up in the business that they're in. How did you end up in this business, Ashley? Well, honestly, it, it wasn't something that I thought I would end up in. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I moved to Vancouver uh, numerous years ago when I was looking for a job. I had a family member who was a licensed insolvency trustee and the work always interests me. It seemed very fascinating, but I didn't know much about it. Mm-hmm. So I thought, you know what, there's a job, why don't I take it and try to get a little more information on this business. So I took an introductory admin job and I just became so fascinated by the work. You constantly see people come in, leave with almost their lives changed, you know, um, you seen that the work was had a lot of purpose behind it and that it helped change people's lives and it went a lot of ways. So I wanted to continue learning and, you know, continue to see how I could help these people, you know, more and get to meet people and get to know more about what's bringing them in through the door and how I can actually take some action to help them. Must be really gratifying. Very rewarding. It's one of the most rewarding jobs I've ever had. Um, A lot of the times I get comments like, I sleep better at night because of you. And that just makes my heart melt because, you know, financial stress is very real. 
it takes up uh, a lot of space in other areas of your life when you're dealing with it. So if you can provide someone relief in that, you've now only just opened up other doors for a lot of space in other areas of their life. And you really see them improve in those areas of their life, which is so rewarding. Yeah. And just in all the discussions that Blair and I have had over over the months about the you know our economic situation and, and debt ratios and all that kind of stuff, um, there's going to be... You know, there's there's never going to be a shortage of folks that get in over their heads, and often by no fault of their own, but mm-hmm. by their situation, and because it's changed dramatically, or or something's happened that they didn't expect, whether it be an illness or a job change or whatever. So um, that's great. I'm glad you're I'm glad you're doing the work. Um, what kind of education did you have to have to get in? Uh, So when I started at SANS, I actually didn't have much education behind insolvency. So as I went through SANS, I took the CARE uh, Insolvency Administration course. That was my start off there, and I learned a lot through that course. So I finished that in uh, April of 2016, and then after that, I also took the CARE's uh, insolvency or the qualification course for the counselors, insolvency counselors course. So I completed that, and I've just almost done up my 50 sessions that you need to just finish up being qualified. Right, about 47, I think, now. Yeah, almost there. Almost. there. Yes. almost. <laughs> and which has been also a great learning experience, sure. meeting with different people and providing them that helpful information. And then just a lot of smaller courses throughout the way, tax courses, etc. Cool. Most enjoyable thing besides working with Blair in your job? Well, we work with a lot of amazing people at SAN. So, yes, yeah. working with Blair is great. Also working <laughs> with all of my other amazing staff members. Uh, like I said, being able to provide people that relief and see how it really changes uh, their life. Um, also being able to provide knowledge that people didn't even know was out there. Mm-hmm. You know, and knowledge is power. Without it, you know, you can't really do much. But when people get the information and they realize there's all these solutions out there, it really opens up a lot of doors for them as well as just learning more about my own finances, you know, Mm -hmm. working with other people's finances and seeing all these other different situations that are going on out there really makes you aware of, you know, that a lot of these things could happen to you as well. And so it's uh, it's a very humbling experience at the same time. We often talk about or, or have talked about in the past the the uh, sort of the size of the cushion that folks need, what they used to, what they had in the past and, and what folks generally have now. Uh, and it's it's a bit scary, right? Because it, it's a tougher time. It's we, we live in a very expensive part of the world. Uh, real estate aside, just mm-hmm. the cost of living uh, in British Columbia compared to Alberta, Saskatchewan, the Prairie Provinces, or your uh, the Maritime Provinces. So that's great. Yeah, lots of lots of good information. Ashley, I wonder if we could ask you to share a couple stories, maybe one or two of some clients you've worked with that's kind of stuck with you that you think might be interesting for the listeners, because a lot of folks listening out here, I want them to understand, you know, they can come and see you, but what's the type of situation um, that you've been able to help someone through recently? Recently, one that's really stood out to me is I had a gentleman come see me who was running his own corporation, and he ended up in a lot of tax debt over Mm -hmm. the corporation. Uh, He just wasn't very knowledgeable on how you needed to do the tax filings, etc. Was he a contractor or what type of... He actually ran his own uh, entertainment business, so it was a very interesting field that he had, and um, he just thought that, you know, there's no option for me, and Mm. he just kind of felt he had a family, and he thought that, you know, his family was really going to suffer from this as well, and he had this, again, a very negative idea around bankruptcy. You know, and after coming in and seeing us, he was just amazed at how much relief it could provide him in his life, that the tax debt could be included, and that, you know, eventually he could see a light at the end of this tunnel. 
So he made the assignment into bankruptcy, and he just actually recently completed his bankruptcy. Oh, and happy day, yeah. <laughs> yeah, this client actually used to come in every month to do the budgeting with me because he found that so helpful throughout the bankruptcy, the monthly budgeting. And so he said that not only did it give him the relief, but there was so much knowledge and tools given to him throughout the process that now he feels really ready to go out there and be financially successful. And, you know, for someone with a family that has young children, that's just so great to hear. So that was one of my favorites. And the fact that I'm pretty sure he's going to then pass all this information on to his children, right? Mm-hmm. Because often kids are left out of that uh, of that discussion, that money discussion. And, uh, and that's really important, right? Yeah, really absolutely. important. Really important. Ashley, when someone's coming in to meet with you, what should they expect for that first initial meeting? You know, what type of information, what type of questions, how do you structure that first contact? You know, the first meeting is always a bit overwhelming for people, I find, but what you can expect from that meeting is just to really be having a conversation with someone who's qualified to help you. They're not Mm -hmm. there to judge you. They're not there to, you know, crunch the numbers right away. We just want to hear where you are at, what's kind of gotten you there, and how we can help. And so the first meeting is always just for you to really let us know what you're dealing with, get as much information as you can so you know, you know, I have the information on what steps I need to take forward. And that's really what the first meeting is. It's not about getting everything figured out, but starting there and getting you the knowledge that you need to kind of see what you want to do about taking over your situation. And what do you charge for that first meeting? It's absolutely free, which is the best part. Mm-hmm. And it's and you know and the, if if that's what it takes to get somebody in the door uh, to start this journey to figure out and get out from underneath this enormous weight, mm-hmm. uh, it's wonderful, right? I just think that's so great that you guys do that. Really good. Um, now we've got about a minute and a half or so left. Words of advice. Words of advice for folks. Take the first step. Don't feel that there's nothing out there for you. There are solutions. There's a lot of information out there. So just start by getting yourself informed because once you have the information, you will realize that there's a lot you can do about your situation. So if you're stuck in a situation where you feel, I can't do anything about this, start by reaching out and maybe taking that first initial consultation or hopping on the website and getting some information. Yeah, that website, Ashley, is amazing. I remember I went to it when, before I met Blair and, we, and started doing the show with them. Uh, it's phenomenal how much information you have. It's well-written. Uh, it's, it's, not, uh, it's not filled with terms that you're not going to know. It's just very conversational and gives you a whole bunch of different scenarios uh, and then the and then the answers and then of course that little bit of push to say you know what if you really want to take this on give us a call find an office yeah it's free it's unbiased advice um, I've never had someone say that we've wasted their time for the first meeting quite the opposite I have people say why did I wait so long I was so scared of being judged that this was going to cost money so on and so forth so if anybody listening if this can shortcut them from having literally two years of despair is what a lot of people take before they come in to see us to Ashley's point make the call you won't regret it and here's the phone number uh, 1-800-661-3030 to get that free consultation as well as to find an office uh, near you, their website address, sands-trustee.com. You've been listening to Dollars and Cents. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.